One of the frustrating but also fascinating things about looking at queer history before the 1800s is that so much of it is a shadow history. The history of same-sex love in the past is told not through proud and clear declarations, but through idioms, allegories, hints, and gestures. Many of these are lost completely or have had their true meanings obscured by the march of time. Except in precious few cases, the only alternative to this shadow history is a history told all but exclusively from the views of the persecutors and legislators, pieced together from trial records and unsympathetic eyewitness reports. It's no wonder why so many people today, mostly queer theorists, but still a few historians, are convinced that same-sex love was only ever thought of as an act and had no real grounding in identity until a bunch of late 19th century doctors and psychiatrists happened to give it one. However, not only am I convinced that identities based on exclusive same-sex desire existed long, long before the term homosexual was ever coined, but I think historians of same-sex desires should be investigating the experience of feeling love for people of the same gender in times of extreme social, cultural, and political condemnation rather than hashing out these old and tired theoretical disputes. That brings me to the myth of the beloved disciple, the one disciple, quote, whom Jesus loved, whose testimony is said to be the basis for the Gospel of John. Now, I'm not arguing that Jesus was gay or queer or whatever, although you have to admit the whole hanging around 12 guys all the time thing probably raised some eyebrows. Instead, this is about a particular and rather shocking interpretation of the story of Jesus and the mysterious and unnamed beloved disciple. You might think some enterprising gay or left-wing screenwriter or playwright or novelist invented this whole interpretation sometime in the last century or so to shock the evangelical crowd. But in reality, the story can be traced back to the 1500s. Before we get to that, though, there's still the question of exactly who this beloved disciple was. The Gospel of John never names them or even clarifies if they were a woman or a man. All it says is that the anonymous author of the Gospel of John relied on accounts from the beloved disciple for writing the Gospel. Because, of course, we're talking about the book that was named the Gospel of John here. Christian authorities as early as ancient times believed the beloved disciple had to be the disciple John. Other traditions and modern series argue that the beloved disciple was actually Mary Magdalene, which brings us to the strange territory of the last temptation of Christ and the Da Vinci Code and Preacher. Or the beloved disciple was Jesus' brother James, who after Jesus' crucifixion went on to lead the branch of the Christian church based in Jerusalem. Whatever the case may be, there was more than one person in the 16th century who thought the beloved disciple was not only the Apostle John, but was also Jesus' lover. The first recorded account of this belief comes from the trial records of a friar named Francesco Calcongo, 
who was executed in Venice in 1550 on charges of sodomy. One of the accusations against him was that he claimed that John the Apostle was Jesus' catamite, a term for the younger and passive partner in a pederastic relationship. This in of itself is not too telling. Renaissance Italy is filled with extravagant claims of heresy, all because the printing press gave malcontents with the Catholic Church much louder voices and more knowledge about what pre-Christian thinkers and writers were like. What is strange is that not long after Calcongo was put to death, someone on the other side of Europe was saying something very similar. A spy and playwright named Christopher Kit Marlowe. If you're looking for a modern gay man in pre-modern Europe, Kit Marlowe is one of your safer bets. Of course, there are people who will deny that Marlowe was only into men or into men at all, because even now there are plenty of academics who will twist their logic into pretzels to deny such things. Honestly, anyone who read Marlowe's plays Edward II and Hero and Leander would just know that Kit Marlowe was really into men and was proud of the fact. Another clue is that in 1593, Kit Marlowe was formally accused of heresy. A key piece of evidence dug up by prosecutors was a document lost to history, but which was apparently riddled with blasphemous concepts. Among them was the claim that the Apostle John was Jesus's quote, bedfellow. We don't know what would have come out of the trial for the simple and ugly fact that Marlowe was murdered less than two weeks after he was charged. Combined with the rather blatant homoerotic themes in Marlowe's work, as well as his broader themes of being a defiant outsider, this one blasphemous reference to personal life of Jesus Christ speaks to more than just Marlowe's apparently flippant attitude toward religion. Not for nothing is Marlowe counted not only among the ranks of pre-modern gays, but also pre-modern atheists. While it's impossible to be certain, the trial records do suggest that Marlowe recognized his sexual and romantic desires, and thought that they placed him in a historic tradition he traced back to the subject of his most famous play, King Edward II of England who, according to legend, received a red-hot poker up his rectum, in no small part because he favored the attentions of a man over those of his wife and queen Isabella. Perhaps Marlowe also traced this tradition back to Jesus and the beloved disciple. One of Marlowe's near contemporaries would echo his blasphemous statement. Luckily, this man was much safer from ever being put on trial for heresy. King James VI of Scotland, and the I of England. Not only that, but James I is another likely specimen of the pre-modern gay man. In fact, an entire book has been written about James's sexuality and its historical implications. There is enough out there to make a whole episode on James, and I probably will do it one of these days. But my own favorite bit of evidence about James' sexual preferences is that when he was just the King of Scotland, he was nearly kidnapped by a young Scottish nobleman. The official story spread in Scotland's churches at James's own request, 
was that the nobleman lured James away from his guards by promising to show him a newly recovered Roman treasure trove. But apparently, both in Scotland and in foreign royal courts, it was widely rumored that James was attracted by the promise of something else offered by the handsome, athletic young nobleman. Also, James's most famous and notorious love was the Earl of Buckingham. So famous and notorious, in fact, that a ship which was named Buckingham's Entrance, was quickly renamed for mysterious reasons. Still, sometimes it doesn't seem that James was all that coy about his desires, even though like any other good king of the time, he condemned sodomy. In fact, James rather strangely seemed to invoke the myth of the beloved disciple to describe his love of John during a 1617 speech to his privy council. Quote, you may be sure that I love the Earl of Buckingham more than anyone else, and more than you who are here assembled. I wish to speak in my own behalf, and not to have it thought to be a defect, for Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed. Christ had John, and I have George. It's not hard to explain this away. James was not actually speaking about sexual or romantic love, and the fact that his remark echoes Marlowe and Calcongo, two men suspected of sodomy, is just a coincidence. But if it is a coincidence, it's really one hell of a coincidence. It's also really unlikely that James, who was extremely widely read and scholarly, was not at least aware of Christopher Marlowe and the charges that were brought against him just two decades ago. The wording here too, for Jesus Christ did the same, and therefore I cannot be blamed, is intriguing. If it seems unlikely that James would illuminate the real nature of his relationship with Buckingham so blatantly to his counsel, then perhaps James knew his cue would not be fully understood or even he did not care what they knew about his relationship. What can be said for sure is that we have three separate individuals in a relatively short time frame making references to the same interpretation of a biblical tradition. And finally, two of these men were widely known to not only historians, but their contemporaries for same-sex love. There is a possibility, or maybe even more than just a possibility here, that they weren't the only ones. That there was this tradition known at least, but not likely just, in England and Italy, that held up Jesus and the Apostle John as symbols of male same-sex love. Friar Calcongo, Kit Marlowe, and King James I all knew about this tradition, and understood it as not crass blasphemy but as an allegory for, and maybe even a legitimization of, love, romantic and sexual, between men. Can we ever know for absolutely sure? No, unless someone finds that James or Marlowe wrote a diary all about their sex lives and what they thought about them. But still, to me it's proof that we shouldn't deny that the history is there at all, just because the evidence isn't 100% conclusive. 